Morning Bethel. So good to see all of you this wonderful Sunday. As Pastor Jay, I said I've got a lower voice today. I woke all of my family up singing some of the uh, deep bass songs this morning to the point where my kids said, stop it, Dad. I'm tired of hearing it. So um, look forward to uh, today. This is going to be a great day as we start our Easter season. It's hard to believe Easter is here. Easter is the last Sunday in March. We are four weeks away from Easter. So we are, are, are moving along in our series on the life of Christ um, to the passion. And so the next following weeks we'll be talking about the leading up to that crucifixion as we prepare our hearts and minds for what Christ did for us upon the cross. You know, it, it's going to be, a, I believe this is going to be a great Easter for Bethel. Um, many of you sitting out there today started attending Bethel during an Easter season, uh, uh, during one year. And I'm really praying that God will, you know, as you look this morning, we're like teetering on another row. I'm praying that after this Easter season, God will, will get to the point where we need an extra one or two or three rows to extend in the back because God's going to send some people to us. And he can do that and we'll do that through you. So that friend, that family, that neighbor that you have been conversing with, have that relationship with, now is the perfect time to say, hey, come with me to church on Easter, and God can use you um, to change lives. So let's uh, take advantage of that opportunity over the next several weeks. Uh, we got something special at the end of the service that will help you with that, that Pastor Jay is going to talk about, I Won't Steal His Thunder. You know, as we move into our sermon today, we're going to be talking about um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, Andrew, if you can go ahead and throw the, the pictures up there of the Garden of Gethsemane. What we know of the garden is in this passage we're going to talk about today where Jesus was praying um, as you all know, a year ago, actually last week, my family and I were able to, to visit Israel. And Gethsemane is actually a Hebrew word, shamanin, which means oil press, olive oil press. And so, which leads the leader to believe that this garden of Gethsemane was actually an olive garden with olive trees. And Lange, if you go back to the previous picture, if you look there, this olive tree Many of the olive trees in that garden, you'll notice there's all kinds of little like um, nubs on the tree, and each nub reckon, uh, um, is, is, represents a decade that that tree has been there. So they can date these trees in this garden back to the time of Christ, which is really phenomenal to think about. You know, as we were walking through the garden, you can go on to the next picture there, as we were walking through this garden with all of these olive trees, this passage that we're going to read here in just a moment could have possibly happened underneath one of these trees that are still in the garden there today because they take all of the, the you know, this represents 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, and they say, man, it's 2,000 years that this tree has been here in this garden, um, and there are you know, dozens of them in this garden there in, in Israel. But let's start reading here in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, our story today. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, 
he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And from there, they lift up their eyes, and there's Judas and the temple guards coming to take away Jesus to his ultimate crucifixion. Now, one of the first things we notice is that Jesus does not go to his death with the defiance and bravery that we might expect. He, in this passage, appears weak and almost scared. It's a little confusing because some of the world's greatest heroes have died with their fist in the face of the evil empire. You know, we think about those great movie characters like Braveheart and Gladiator defiantly saying, you don't scare me, I'll never back down, I'll have vengeance in this life or the next. You know, those make the good Hollywood movies. Plato says that Socrates, when he was executed, was cool and stoic. When he was given the hemlock to drink, he was calm, his color didn't change, and he even cracked a few jokes before his death. Jesus' followers would die defiantly like that. Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, said when they came to take him, he went calmly. And when asked what he'd like to say before being burned at the stake, he says, you think I'm afraid of this fire? It burns only for a minute and it is gone. You should be afraid of the fires of hell. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. Bring it on. Man, what defiance and death. But that's not how Jesus goes to his death. He's in this passage trembling and almost scared. And what's really strange about this is that everywhere else, Jesus shows an unflinching courage in the face of danger. Right before this, Jesus' disciples are telling him he's crazy for going to Jerusalem because he's sure to be in danger. But Jesus always has been the bold, brave one. And it's not like he's withering in the face of pain either because the first aspect of his torture has yet to even begin. But in verses 33 and 34 that we just read, there's a very strange phrase. It says, he began to be astonished and troubled. In the Greek, it literally says, suddenly he began to be astonished all at once. In other words, it's as though Jesus saw something in verse 33 that wasn't there in verse 32. The text says he was troubled by it. 
Troubled is a very strong Greek word that means to be overcome with shocking horror. What Jesus saw was so overwhelming that he almost died from it. Verse 34, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus is not one to exaggerate. What he saw almost killed him, it says here in verse 34. Luke says he was under so much strain, if you read the same story in the Gospel of Luke, that he began to sweat drops of, of blood, which is a condition called hematidosis, under such stress that your capillaries burst and you start sweating blood. And here's Jesus who spoke the worlds into existence, who walked on top of the angry waves, calmed the fiercest storm, cast out demons, healed diseases, brought people from death to life, so horrified at something that he sees that his capillaries begin to burst, crying out in agony for his father, and as he says, nearly causes him death. What did he see? What was it? That caused him this great stress. What he saw was the judgment for our sin that he was about to bear upon himself. Notice what he prays in verse 36 after being troubled. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He calls God Abba, the term closest in intimacy with God. But you notice here there's no response from God the Father. You see, up until this point, he has enjoyed, while walking on this earth, an intimacy with the Father. He often withdrew to be alone with God to draw strength. The Father had always radiated with openness to him, sometimes even affirming him publicly, like at his baptism. And yet now... In the garden of Gethsemane, only silence. And so he stumbles back to his disciples, looking almost for some kind of comfort. And what does he find his disciples doing? Dozing off in the garden. He wakes them up and says, guys, I need you now. I need you. He's looking for comfort. He needed somebody, but they are asleep, and so he goes back again to the Father in verse 39. And again, the same thing, only silence. What's happening here? What's going on in this passage? New Testament scholar William Lane says that the only explanation that as God has already begun to turn his face away from Christ the crucifixion had already begun at this point. Before, before the first nail was driven into his body, Jesus was being abandoned by God. Jesus had lived his life, you see, for the approval of the Father. And now in the moment Jesus needed the Father most, God turned his face away. And Jesus staggered under the weight of it almost to the point of death. Yes, why would the Father do that? You see, as Jesus was beginning to take upon our sin, the sin of the world upon himself, the Father in his holiness 
could not look upon it. Just imagine the aloneness that Jesus felt, having been one with the Father for all of eternity. Have you ever felt alone? Maybe a trusted friend turns on you. Have you been rejected? I think about what it would be like to reject or to turn away one of my children, to, look, to have them look to me in a moment of pain or weakness and for them to be crying out to me in a moment of need and to turn away on them in scorn and rejection when they need me most. My children know I'm not a perfect father by any means, but what was it like for Jesus to lose the intimacy of the father that he had known for all of eternity? There's really not an analogy for this that does this passage justice. There's nothing really which I can compare it to to really make us understand. Even the, what I just tried doing, the, the human aspect, really it, it kind of takes away from the bitterness and the tragedy really of this moment. Somehow in that moment, Jesus experienced the equivalency of an eternity of hell for us. In that moment, all of heaven, I'm sure, fell silent. All of the angels in heaven are probably looking at each other, not sure exactly what is happening. A worship song we sing here, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. There's probably nothing we ever sing that has more truth to it than those words when we reflect on this passage. In Gethsemane, Jesus stared into the horror of hell and almost died from it, and then voluntarily went into it for us. You see, that's what hell is, complete abandonment by God. You see, I always thought that's what made Jesus' death so bad were the physical horrors. You know, having the, the nails driven into your hands and feet. As awful as a crucifixion would be, that's why the Romans used it, because the physical horrors were terrible. It pales into comparison what Jesus was experiencing with the abandonment by the Father. Cicero said that one of the Romans' goals in the cross was utter humiliation because the cross was so horrible, so painful, men would weep, vomit, and urinate all over themselves. The Romans would beat them until they were utterly unrecognizable. You see this if you watch the Passion movie. Cicero said that it was not uncommon in the scourging to see a rib just go flying. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be beaten to the point where he would not look like a man. He was nailed up on a cross naked in a public space full of light and day. So yes, the physical horrors, they were awful. They were terrible. But listen, that's not what's happening here 
in this passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. What made Jesus stagger? It was the abandonment by God he faced. It was, that was the whore of the cross for him. And Gethsemane, Jesus looked into the cup of God's wrath and it overwhelmed him so much, it almost killed him in the garden. Isaiah 51, 17 describes God's wrath for our sin like a toxic poison kept in a cup. As that cup was offered to us, Jesus stepped in and drank it on our behalf every last drop. When he was on the cross... It's like he turned that cup upside down to show that it was empty when he finished with the words, it is finished. He was saying God's wrath has been satisfied. To think that we would even entertain the idea that there are multiple ways to God. Could there be a greater insult to Christ? Twice, Jesus asked the Father in this passage if there was another way. And twice, the Father said no. God had determined to save us, and this was the only way. You see, the gospel at its core is substitution. Jesus in my place. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop so that not a drop would be left for you and me. And that all we would be left with is the cup of joy. The joy that is mine to drink for the Lord has conquered death, victorious evermore. My ancient foe, sin and death has been laid to rest. Substitution, Jesus in my place, offered to you as a gift. Have you accepted the gift that Jesus so freely offers to you of salvation? That is what Gethsemane means for you and your salvation. Let me tell you what it means for you as you walk today, maybe through some dark valleys of loneliness valleys of pain. Let me give us some reminders today for us as we go through these deep, dark times in life. Number one, you should stand amazed at his love for you in his darkest hour. The cross, Paul says, puts on God's display of love for us. The great writer and speaker Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why did God let Jesus see this before the cross? If anything, isn't it kind of dangerous for Jesus to see this before the cross? Why didn't God wait until Jesus was secured to the cross to show him God's wrath? Why did God show it to him now before the cross? It was so we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us would be on display forevermore. The circumstances of the cross were designed to put 
God's love for us on display. God turned his back on his most beloved son because God so loved the world, because God so loved you, and this was the only way to save you. The Gospel of Luke says that right toward the end of this, in Luke twenty two forty three, that an angel came to minister to him in the garden. I've wondered, how did the angel minister to Jesus? What did he say to him? We don't know. Scripture does not tell us. But maybe it was something along the lines of Hebrews 2, chapter 12, verse 2. It gives us an answer for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Maybe the angel said something that helped give Jesus joy as he went to the cross. The joy of what? What was the joy set before him? Can you imagine the words joy and cross being in the same sentence? What would Jesus obtain through the cross that he did not have before? What would he have on this side of the cross that he did not have on the other side of the cross? The approval of God? No, he he already had that. The kingship of the universe? It's already his. What is the one thing he would have after the cross that he did not have before the cross? You. You. A redeemed people. He was doing this to save you and me from our sins. Never doubt his love for you. No matter where you find yourself in life and you feel betrayed or alone or like God has forgotten about you, he has not. Never doubt that God loves you. Isaiah 43 says that he went to the cross because we were precious in his sight. So number one, stand amazed by his love for you in his darkest hour. Number two, believe in his love for you in your darkest hour. Because Jesus faced utter aloneness, rejection by God in my place, I never have to fear being forsaken by God. Substitution means he took my place. Any condemnation, any rejection, any aloneness I deserve, he took it so that I can now say there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. Why? Because you are with me. Goodness and mercy will follow me. All the days of my life. Why? Because he took evil and wrath in my place. I know many of you have gone through some tremendously terrible things. Maybe you have felt like God has abandoned you, like you were alone. You are not. And this shows that you will never be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken, so you never would be. So when you say, where is God? Why doesn't he stop this? 
Why doesn't he do something? Gethsemane helps you see that the one thing you never need to doubt on this earth is his love for you. John Owen, the famous Puritan writer, said that in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could do to God is to doubt his love for you. We don't understand all that God was doing in the darkest hour any more than the disciples understood what was happening when they were falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine later, as the disciples move later in life, how much, how ashamed Peter, James, and John must have felt to think about what Jesus was going through in that garden and they couldn't stay awake when he needed them. So when you feel alone, like no one cares, like you're forgotten, look to Gethsemane. If God didn't abandon you at this point when hell was literally squeezing the life out of him, why would Jesus abandon you now? If you feel abandoned by God, you're wrong. See, maybe you have been forgotten or forsaken by intimate human relationships. Maybe it's a parent or parents that have abandoned you. By someone close to you, a spouse who divorced you, a friend who betrayed you, or children that maybe have rejected you. But God, your Savior, Jesus Christ, cannot and will not. He went through Gethsemane, hell, to rescue you. When he looks at his nail-scarred hands, he thinks about you. It says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or joy compose so rich a crown? As the songwriter, I can never be forgotten. You can never be abandoned, forgotten by God. And so when you are discouraged, when you feel alone or abandoned or depressed, you must come here to this passage and preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it to yourself. You have to tell yourself, I feel abandoned, but I am not. Why? Because Gethsemane proves it. And if he did not withhold his own son for me, he will not freely now also Will he not freely now give me all things? Can anything separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? You must continually preach the gospel to your despondent self. You need to stop listening to your fearful, doubting heart and start preaching the gospel to it. Defy those feelings of despondency with faith in the gospel of Gethsemane. And then you can say with Paul and pain that though the outward man is dying, many of us in this day, in this room, feel like what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Even though the outward man is dying, the inward man is renewed in Christ day by day. Though I am poor, yet in Christ I am rich. Though I have nothing, yet in him I possess all things. 2 Corinthians 6.10 
So number two, believe in his love for you in your darkest hour. Number three, we must read the Great Commission through the lens of Gethsemane. Let me read the Great Commission to you, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. And when and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The God who tells us go is the Savior of Gethsemane. Is he not worth giving up everything for? Is it not urgent that everyone in your circle of influence know about this Savior who gave everything for you? Shouldn't they know about what he's done? Should you not constantly be giving him glory for it? Is he not worthy of being worshipped? Is there anything too great to ask of him? Is there any request that would exhaust the limits of his love? So the burdens that you walked in here today with, I ask you, when is the last time you laid them at the feet of Jesus in prayer and prayed that God would take care of those burdens. Is there anything too great that we can ask of our Savior? No. How do we know that? Because he took the wrath of God for us. So you ask, Ask me to do great things in the life of your friends, your family, your community that I have put before you and around the world. Bethel, that's why our dreams for our church are so big. Because we believe in a God who is possible to do all things. He died to bring the nations to worship. He died to turn murdering Saul's into Apostle Paul's and transform haters of the gospel into passionate worshipers. You may say, you know what, Uncle Joe or Cousin Felipe or whoever, they hate anything to do with religion and God. They are not too far from God's grace and mercy. The Spirit could not change their hearts from being haters to worshipers. God asks you to go and tell them. So here's my question. As we end, does the size of your prayers match the size of his sacrifice? Don't insult his sacrifice through small dreams and weak expectations. That's not what he died for. Are you praying God-sized prayers in your family and in your life? Second question, is what you are pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice. 
Jesus didn't die so we could just get rich and live an easy, comfortable life pursuing the American dream. That's not what Gethsemane is about. We are dealing here with eternity. You see, the Spirit of God is moving and working in some of your hearts this morning, and eternity is in the balance. We are dealing with eternity, something so important. Jesus went through Gethsemane and the cross. If Gethsemane is true, then my priorities must be different. I have to devote myself to helping people come to understand and to a saving faith of his immeasurable love for me and for you. Is what you're pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice? Maybe an easier way of saying that is what you're living for worth him dying for. Some of you sitting out here today hear this message and you've yet to make the decision to follow Christ and allow his death to pay the penalty for your sin. You've yet to have a time and a place where you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want this Easter season to be that time and place that you make that decision to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.